G'day, here at the Regenerative Journey, part of our goal is to educate our followers on the benefits of knowing where their food comes from and the knock-on effects this can have on our health, our environment and our future generations. Understanding the connection has never been more important and in the spirit of this endeavour, we have teamed up with Highland Beef Pastoral Company, a grass-fed beef supply chain servicing the growing US grass-fed consumer market, who I'm excited to announce are our Season 6 show sponsors. Essentially, this Australian-based business places cattle on their member graziers' properties at no expense to the farmer and provides competitive returns for every kilo of beef produced, allowing their graziers to focus on improving their businesses in a capital-free and risk-free environment. Highland Beef Graziers are some of the best grass and animal managers in the country. Livestock are humanely and lovingly cared for while on their farms and customers are guaranteed a very high-quality, regeneratively managed grass-fed and finished product with full transparency from farm to plate. If you're interested in finding out more about this program, visit hbpastoral.com.au forward slash Charlie Arnott. The whole regenerative farming movement is exactly in that position now, okay? We've had 70 years of industrial intensified agriculture where we've sort of had the hubris of saying we can just put more on, more on, more on, whether it's cultivation, fertilisers, biocides, irrigation, you name it. And, of course... Yes, we can get higher yields, but the quality, the nutritional integrity of the plants we're growing isn't anything like they were in nature. We can come back to that later. But also we've got a very vulnerable artificial landscape as a consequence. And now with climate extremes intensifying, this is being tested. That was Walter Yenner, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host, Charlie Arnott, an eighth-generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. back to the regenerative journey and uh this week's guest is walter yana ex-csiro scientist based in canberra fascinating chap um before i bang on about how wonderful walter is and his his if anyone was the rcs conference um last in, in july in in, uh, in brisbane the convergence conference there you will know what i'm talking about um walter is hilarious um his quote of the conference the rootability of soil um, brought the house down. Um, he did reference it in this interview. But before we keep banging on about Walter, I just want to reference a couple of quick things. I'll make it a quick one this time. Um, RM, uh, uh, mRNA vaccines for animals, cattle and sheep, rumours <clears throat> for foot and mouth, 
Um, that's been in the headlines recently. Um, you might be hearing this a couple of weeks after I've recorded this, in which case there might be more in the headlines. Do not understand why anyone thinks that's a good idea, given the, um, dare I say, failure of the mRNA technology in preventing or mitigating against illness and um, certainly was the catalyst for many injuries, um, vaccine injuries, I would suggest uh, in the human population in the last couple of years and still continues to, why the hell do they anyone think it's a good idea to create an mRNA vaccine for foot and mouth? Um, two things. That technology, what's it do for the animals in terms of, well, what's it do for people eating those animals, you know, for cattle? Is this part of some crazy conspiracy to stop us from eating meat? Maybe, who knows? Um, but quite seriously, like if animals are being injected with that, for whatever reason, whether it's, whether it's mandated or just, you know, farmers think it's a good idea just to be safe because they're scared of foot and mouth, um, I don't want to be eating that meat. I'd like to know, you know, any any meat that I'm buying, which is not a hell of a lot, but um, you go to a restaurant, I mean, I just don't like the idea of eating that meat for lots of reasons. Um, don't know that's something I want to be consuming. The other thing is, too, I thought that uh, certainly with the conventional vaccine for foot and mouth, that um, if an animal's been vaccinated with it, inoculated, they basically are deemed having, having foot and mouth, um, in theoretically, <clears throat> which means they can't be exported anyway to other countries. So if we were to mRNAize all our cattle for foot and mouth, what does that do for export industry? And back to my first point, who'd want to eat that anyway? Big, I don't know, big things, interesting um, times ahead with that. They just don't quit, do they? It's, you know, just when the whole pandemic seems to be gone a bit quieter and maybe there's some sensibility in the ranks of where people are making decisions about our health. Um, I did hear the other day there was some whisper of lock, lockdowns at Christmas time. I was like, really? Is the general population going to put up with that crap again? Haven't we all learnt enough that it was a complete waste of time? The economic, the human health, the mental health, the death, the whole thing, that whole that whole bag. Um, and then someone has the gall to go, yep, maybe it's a good idea we lock it down at Christmas. Again, once again, holiday period. I don't know, unbelievable. Am I the only one living in a parallel universe here? Uh, the other thing is, on a brighter side, much brighter side, Zach Bush. The Bush is coming to Australia, which is awesome, um, uh, hosted by Farmers Footprint Australia, Blair Beattie, who I've just interviewed, actually sitting in his lovely sunroom here. Um, in the northern rivers of New South Wales, I have um, hot off the, not a hot, hot off the press, press because it's, it's been advertised. I think Byron Bay is a sellout already. He's going to be, that's on the, um, I think the 6th of December, the 2nd of December, he's going to be in Sydney. I think you might even fly in that day. It's a big call. Um, Sunday, I have the pleasure of interviewing Zach in um, in Byron Bay at the farm at Byron Bay. He probably would have flown from Sydney, so he'd be probably bloody exhausted, but he's a bit of a machine. Um, and then uh, Monday, he's going to be um, in Brisbane, I think, and then on the Tuesday, the 6th, he's going to be back in Byron Bay. Um, we are running a biodynamics workshop on the Monday, Tuesday, on the 5th and 6th as well, so I don't know. Maybe 
Will there's, there, there might be a crossover there. Who knows? We might be able to get Zach to pop in and say good day because um, he'll be at the farm, I think, at the same time. I don't want to say too much because I don't know all the details. Um, and he's off to Melbourne for a few days. Ten days here. I know our West Australian friends are um, understandably a bit dark on the fact that he's not heading over there. He's only here for ten days. It's the first time he's been here for th- since March 2020 because uh, I know that for sure because it was the week the world went to the shit. He just got home with a day spare when all that went to the went to put there um, in the in the you know COVID world and the the um, that all hit the fan. Um, so lovely to have him back in the country and uh, we want to make it such an enjoyable experience that he wants to come back twice a year as part of his role in Farmers Football Australia and his influence and uh, on agriculture in the world and certainly Australia. I can't wait to have his um, he, have him here in the, in Australia. Um, it's been a long time coming. That's probably enough chat, chitty chat for me about that stuff. Over to Walter. Um, caught up with him at the Australian National Botanic Gardens there in Canberra, which he had that was instrumental as a student um, when they established the basically the rainforest there, um, uh, which is not a rainforest area by any means in Canberra. But what he did do was um, uh, was was there when they put in the just checking my levels here again. Um, they recreated a rainforest area in, in, in dry scaliferal forest in, in Canberra. It was fascinating. It's still there all these years later. Um, so we had a chat there. Fascinating guy. Loved his chat at, um, at the RCS Convergence Conference. Um, it just the way he, his articulation, he's such an such a intellect, um, which can be, um, can be a liability for some who can't articulate and sort of... Um, uh, express um, themselves, but Walter has no trouble doing that at all. He makes very, um, uh, you know, potentially complex um, concepts and, and principles very easy to understand. We talked about methane. I, I ran into, I think, I've been following him for a while, but Walter in um, Maloon Creek probably three and a half years ago now, two and a half years ago, um, and um, he did a fa- very funny, uh, not funny, funny as in it was in- interesting, funny, and just very, very entertaining, um, uh, quick little session, impromptu session about methane cycling, which is just gold. Anyway, enough bang on from me. Um, Walter is a legend. We, and he, you'll be pleased to know he did engage the whiteboard in the background. You'll hear sort of later in the um in the interview, when he gets up and whiteboards, it, he's um, the audio is not as good. It's still very clear, but um, you'll know you'll hear a bit of a bit of a gap there, um, and that's just Walter scribbling madly on the on the um, on the whiteboard, which you'll be able to see if you want to see what he's actually doing. Jump on YouTube and track down Walter's interview, um, and you'll see all of the whiteboard action there. But I trust you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I did um, recording it with Walter Yana for the Regenerative Journey. Walter Yainer, welcome yeah. to Regenerative Journey and welcome to the Australian National Botanical Gardens. Yes, uh, 1968 we built it and it's been here for 50 years. It's now world-leading botanical gardens, especially Australia's flora, but much deeper. It's the actual life down under. It's the actual processes which drive this unique flora and that's, in a sense, was resident here in these gardens. The narrative isn't as widely out there as it needs to be, 
but it's a very, very important place. Well, I hope we have the opportunity to, for you to express that narr- narrative. Did you say we built it in 1968? Uh, I was part of... Now, don't be humble. Like, no, no. Tell, you just tell us all about it. <laughs> no, no. It was basically designed, but we were basically part of, in that design initial process. I was a final year graduate at the um, forestry at ANU here, and so with Derek Ovington, the professor, this was one of the sort of how do we design a botanical garden, but more importantly, it was a rainforest gully, and is it possible to artificially create a rainforest by re-establishing the natural processes of a rainforest, and that was certainly what's happened, right? It was a eroded... A, degraded erosion gully, you know, dead car bodies, all that rubbish in there, mm-hmm. completely arid, desertified, and then the question is can we actually restore soil processes, you know, the litter, fungal breakdown, nutrient cycling, moisture retention, and progressively rebuild a rainforest. And, of course, the first thing was can we come in with protective pioneer shelterwood trees to create shelter. That's the Australian acacias after fire. They create that umbrella, that shelter, and then progressively under that do we build the soil, you know, the organic matter and stuff like that, and then the organic matter in the soil being able to retain water but also making nutrients more available from a very otherwise minimalist nutritional base. And so then that's how it started. And then, of course, progressively, yes, they did interplant other plants in it, but all the ecology was actually just accelerating a natural rainforest succession. And it, in a sense, follows what happens in eucalypt forests naturally, where you start off from fire, and it's a fire succession, initially with acacia as a fireweed, putting soil structure organic matter, but particularly nitrogen back into the system. And then, of course, the eucalypt regrowth coming from that. And then, of course, progressively as the soil builds, moving to a wet sclerophyll rainforest. So so that's fascinating That because I imagine in a lot of um, garden establishment of botanic gardens or otherwise, there's probably a need just to get it all in in the first year or over a couple of years and just create, you know, straight away. But there was clearly an intent to go, an understanding, more importantly, that we could do that, but it's going to take a lot of work and it's probably not going to work properly as opposed to let's actually mimic natural success. Most botanical gardens were, in a sense, stamp collecting originally, you know, like it was ethnobotany, Mm. it was going around the world, what are all the exotic plants around the world, can we actually then bring them back to Kew and other botanical gardens and try them out. But we, you know, we live above the ground, so it was always the plants above the ground, and can we actually now establish these plants for demonstration study purposes? Here it was a little bit more, here's a unique Australian flora. It's only the Australian flora that's represented in these gardens. Mm-hmm. But what are the unique processes? And that's really fundamental. Australia's unique, 46 million years of isolation since leaving Gondwanaland and having evolved over that 46 million years, mainly through soil microbial ecology, fungi, to actually create the systems for absorbing nutrients that are otherwise unavailable, cycling nutrients, retaining moisture, giving you know, a mesic habitat 
Whereas otherwise it would be a very dry, impoverished habitat. What was that word? Amazic? Amazic? Amazic. Amazic, yeah. Water holding, water retaining, yeah, cool. water harvesting. And that's the other thing that's extremely see, And so, okay, this whole particular represents actually more the processes down under. It's actually quite a nice message, isn't it? <laughs> this is Australia's <laughs> National Botanical Garden. Mm. Vegetation processes down under, but very much in the soil. And that mesic characteristic, the capacity to infiltrate, retain, make available water, give resilience, give longevity of green growth. And see, these are fundamental things in agriculture. We're going to hit that now with climate change because, again, we've had agriculture with the same mentality of a... We need these plants, these are yields, you know, above-ground biomass, and we tend to forget about the governing limitations down under, and it's understanding them from these sorts of environments which is critical for the future. So that was a great template, not necessarily a blueprint, and it's not sort of about adopting those practices, but in terms of the thought process and the process of... Re, re-establishing that yes. ecology there, that's a, that's a great um, template for farming, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, because <clears throat> the whole regenerative farming movement is exactly in that position now, OK? We've had 70 years of industrial intensified agriculture where we've sort of had the hubris of saying we can just put more on, more on, more on, whether it's cultivation, fertilisers, biocides, irrigation, you name it. And, of course... Yes, we can get higher yields, but the quality, the nutritional integrity of the plants we're growing isn't anything like they were in nature. We can come back to that later. But also we've got a very vulnerable artificial landscape as a consequence. And now with climate extremes intensifying, this is being tested. It's also being tested because after 70 years, that industrial agriculture has basically been oxidising carbon from the soil, breaking down soil structures. Oh, what's happened there, Walter? <clears throat> oh, sorry. Oh, I don't want to capture you on a roll. My video's just gone off, and I'm wondering whether I'm out of memory. Oh, oh okay. the bloody thing. I have not, I've got a feeling it might be. I've got to keep an eye on that. Okay. <clears throat> That's okay. I'll just keep an eye. If, if, it's, if it's not, I know what I can delete. Okay. It just might take, to, okay. take me a minute because <clears throat> I want to capture yeah. the whiteboard action. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. No problems. Um, yeah, and so basically uh, that's, you know, what we've been doing with industrial agriculture. But the biggest thing that we've ignored, which is now becoming critically important because it's a point of agency we've got, is restoring that soil health mm. and the soil carbon, the soil structure, but not just physically but the functionality in terms of water holding capacity, biofertility, resilience, microbial ecology, rootability. People get excited about rootability, I don't know why. <laughs> Plants can't grow without it. We wouldn't be here without it. But the point is that, um, yeah, that's really where the guts of uh, terrestrial ecology and terrestrial biosystems are that interaction between you know, the actual dead mineral soil the living microbial ecology and then, of course, the symbiosis with the roots of plants and then plants, of course, fixing carbon, 
producing oxygen, making this whole terrestrial ecology possible. <coughs> that's pretty much it. That's a wrap. Pretty much. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah. That's what, no, that's what no. it all comes down. I'm just going to push that back a bit. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. No, look, and it's, 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 it's in a way so elegant, so simple. And <coughs> totally. Nature sort of just did it, yeah, basically for 20 million years ago. Yeah, we just had oceans with, of course, life in the oceans teeming away. But the land was just bare, hard rock, which is basically no life on land. And it was basically limiting growth biosystems because it was nutrients that were limiting life in the oceans. They were being leached from the rock, but that was been declining. You know, the rocks were, had been weathered. So life being very competitive and expanding said, hey, I've got to get onto that land mm. because I've got to go there and solubilise nutrients um, because that's the limiting factor. And, of course, it was then the fungi growing from the estuarine eggs because they're fine high fault tubes which have got the capacity to transport nutrients but also to colonise and it's then the fungi colonising that bare rock, solubilising essential nutrients from those rocks that then enabled life to extend onto land. But the fungi like us, they're heterotrophs, you know, they're basically proto-animals and they can't photosynthesise, they can't fix their own sugars, only plants and algae can do that and some bacteria, but it's basically the um, plants. And so the fungi then very quickly formed uh, symbiotic associations with algae, and of course we see those everywhere. That's our lichens. So the, here's the lichens, and they're basically that initial soil-forming um, terrestrial biosystem pioneer species. And, of course, they're still all over the planet, continually breaking down rock, timber, concrete, you name it. The lichens are sort of solubilising still now. And, see, these are the sort of process fundamentals that, in a sense, underpin, um, yeah, biofertility, soil formation, everything. And that's what this garden is trying to illustrate in part, but also that's where agriculture has to go. How do we get back to fundamentals to now restore, regenerate those degraded soils because we've been basically just mining that soil capital, you know, and basically just degrading that soil, collapsing it, losing water holding capacity, losing biofertility. We've got to say, okay, how do we use these natural processes to restore, regenerate, rebuild productivity, rebuild resilience. So just like, <clears throat> this is great, Walter. I knew I've been so looking forward to this conversation. I'm just going to move that across to see more of you than me at this point. Um, I just wanted to, just like the, <clears throat> I guess from what I misunderstood, the fungi were kind of the colonisers of the landscape and they kind of partnered up with the lichen to, to try and, you know, start breaking solubilised minerals and so that. Mm -hmm. Is it, is it um, similarly that <clears throat> as farmers trying to uh, improve our landscape or, or, or help heal our landscape that we, that potentially the Fungi and the lichen are our best friends right now to do that? Uh, yes. Look, uh, absolutely, Charlie. The, 
it's exactly the same process. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same fungi <laughs> doing it. And yet we've got to rebuild healthy, structured soil because that's where our water, our nutrients, our rootability, our microbial ecology, disease protection, resilience, productivity <laughs> comes from. And, uh, yeah, we've just got to basically rebuild it. And in a sense, through industrial agriculture, we've it's been degrading those soils and bringing them more and more back to that arid, bare landscape. In fact, we have, because there's 14 billion hectares of ice-free land on this planet. They're not making any more of it, but of that 14 billion hectares, we've already turned 5 billion hectares into man-made desert and wasteland. Okay, that's getting on to 40%. And with climate change, we risk aridifying dramatically, rapidly, some of the 1.5 billion hectares of cropping land that we use for all that food production and some of the residual 5 billion hectares of savanna woodland through. And they're very vulnerable because of overgrazing and vulnerable ecosystems. So we risk actually aridifying landscapes um, in a very serious way. And, of course, we're seeing that all over the planet, like Syria, the Fertile Crescent, you know, 10,000 years ago, the cradle of Western agricultural civilization. You go to Syria now, you're basically seeing this arid wasteland. Mm-hmm. You know, all the farmers have abandoned their land, had to move into cities, Damascus, Aleppo, social cla- collapse, chaos, and, of course, political strife. So here we are, the cradle of Western agriculture, and it's now a desert and social collapse. Jared Diamond described that very, very well in his book, Collapse. Basically, we've had over 20 civilizations throughout you know, human history. Over 20 of them have basically collapsed often in three, four hundred years as they've degraded their soils and with degrading their soils, their hydrology, biofertility, capacity to produce food. <laughs> so they either collapse societies or otherwise the societies have to take up arms and invade other people's lands to colonise those, which, of course, has been part of, a big part of our history. Agriculture's got a lot to answer for, hasn't it? Oh, well, yeah, but no, 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 no excuses. We don't have to apologise. Mm. We need to live, you know, like we like everything has to live, therefore we have to eat, therefore we have to grow mm. and do that. But the point is that we have a brain, so we need the wisdom. And we say, look, rather than just extractively mining, plundering and then come exhausting uh, these resources on a finite planet... Okay, hey, we can actually regenerate them and we can wisely enhance and and ever increase their productivity. So this is, again, something that this botanical garden epitomises. See, Australia, we've, for example, got rainforests, Fraser Island, Kalula, rainforests, and some of the very, very lowest nutrient content soils. So this paradox of the world's most bioproductive terrestrial ecosystem effectively growing on crushed glass, silicon dioxide, next to zero nutrients. And so there you are. How does nature do that? How does it, you know, have that productivity on next to nothing? And, of course, it does it, again, through these fungi Mm -hmm. extremely efficiently cycling 
solubilizing and cycling those nutrients from litter and then re-putting it back into productive thing. And see, again, these are the sort of wisdoms that agriculture needs to embrace rather than putting more on, you know, just trying to say where do we have healthy soils or where do I mine minerals to put mm. more on fertilizer? Can I actually simply just increase the availability and cycling and solubilization of these nutrients that are there naturally and increase biofertility through that? 80% of biofertility productivity relates to the availability of essential nutrients, not their quantity. And yet our whole mentality has been moron. And I guess uh, why has that been? We, we've just gone so not far off the track, um, Walter, and I knew I knew this was going to happen, and it's, I'm glad it has. Um, I want to get back to your life story, <clears throat> but why has while we're on it? Why? What's your view on why did we? At what point and why did we leave the path of logic and practicality and <clears throat> and mimicking and working with nature? Yeah. You know, we we went off on some other well, crazy look, tangent. Um, yeah, it's again, it's just history, and so we're not going to change it, but certainly we need to understand it. And why basically is because it was a lot of hard work cycling, you know, and so in a sense we had the feudal system, you know, where basically you had fallows and cycling and all the dung was being returned, etc., etc. And that basically worked very well. It was sustainable, but it limited how much yield you could get from the land, right, because you had fallowing and what have you and you needed labour, you know, to do sort of a lot of that cycling. And, of course, that limited populations. So that basically under that initial feudal system, yeah, we had one and a half, two billion people on the planet mm. max. Okay? And then after the Second World War, well, Second World War came, we developed actually enormous power capabilities through actually using fossil fuel energy, right? By harvesting oil energy, we had, you know, energy to burn, literally. Yeah. And, of course, we could use that. And, of course, we used it, again, through technologies from the war in larger machines, tractors that could cultivate. We, we could now cultivate soils, move soils physically way before we could be for okay so yes we had that capacity to cultivate and basically with that and also with the ammunitions industry we were Haber Bosch we were able to make nitrates with the nitrate had previously limited production you know the nitrogen supply was limited to dung and nutrient cycling and some guano and what have you very limited and so we then were able to manufacture nitrogen and then we had this really the heron of extra nitrogen and we could actually grow more and the same goes with irrigation and the same goes with the biocides they were the nerve gases we had been experimenting with to kill ourselves well after the war we shouldn't be killing ourselves but hey we can kill all these insects and so basically that was the whole business so we had the capabilities and also there was enormous economic incentive to use them because yes we could grow more and we did we had three billion people on the planet in the 1960s when i was studying you know agriculture and then the whole issue of the green revolution how do we grow more feed feed the 800 million hungry people on the planet 
We've now got 8 billion people on the planet, and that's all been only because of this industrial agriculture and this fossil fuel energy input. So we had to we had to increase food production by using that fossil fuel input, which just then created more people. And then, yeah. and, and but but the excuse has been since that point in time, oh, there's a, there's a growing population. So it's this, it's this uh, yeah, it's a self feeding problem. The only thing then that limits it, of course, but we've had warnings about this for fifty years. The finite planet. We've only got mm. one planet but also that we were investing 10 units of oil-based energy for every unit of food energy we were producing in our industrial agriculture. So we were grossly subsidising, you know, and this abundant fossil fuel, the carbon fixation from the last, you know, 420 million years, we were just mining and exploiting. So it's a very short period where we've just harvested all that stored solar energy, solar energy. for yeah. ourselves, but at a 10 to 1 inefficiency. And, of course, that obviously with the oil crisis became limiting, but now actually much more seriously the climate consequences of that, you know, basic consequence, you know, the, the carbon that's gone from fossil fuels back into the air, uh, I mean, there's much more to the climate crisis than just the CO2, but basically that climate crisis. But the biggest, the biggest um, lesson and mistake, we've known it all along, but the realisation was that as we add these oxidative, as we add, add these oxidative um, industrial inputs, mm. we are just taking carbon from the soil and it's not just increasing the CO2 in the atmosphere, that's just its symptom. What we're doing actually is oxidising carbon. You go, keep going. I'm sorry to make sure we get you. Yeah. What we're doing is oxidising carbon from the soil and with that losing the soil structure. And it's that loss of soil structure, water holding capacity, biofertility, rootability that's really now hitting us. We have... As we said, we've created 5 billion hectares of man-made desert and we've basically oxidised half of the soils in our residual agricultural system. We, that can't go on because we will just collapse biosystems as civilization has shown us many, many times previously. <clears throat> there's not many people saying it won't collapse, will it? I mean, there's, there's lots of sort of... Um, Different ways of expressing that in numbers. Some people there's 60 harvests left. Yeah. Um, you know, by by 2030, you know, X, Y, and Z. But I don't know as many <clears throat> without sort of specifically talking about um, atmospheric carbon <clears throat> as a consequence of that. Uh, just looking on the ground with you know erosion, soil degradation, yeah. deforestation, des- desertification. <clears throat> There's not many people who could say, no, we're actually, you know, getting better. You know, it, it, it's a bit of an eye. I mean, we are in, in, in parts. Yeah. But in I, terms of the, you know, the, the scorecard's looking pretty ordinary, isn't it? Right. Well, more than ordinary, it's, it's going to collapse, except, of course, we as humans have the capacity of intelligence or wisdom, understanding, science, and Therefore, there's been this innovative group of individuals that said, no, this is not sustainable. We need to change. We need to regenerate. Mm. We need to rebuild. We've got to go back to natural fundamentals. And so it's a very, very positive message that we've got. 
but basically, uh, yeah, it's it's at the moment it's yeah it's basically just that one percent saying, hang on, this ninety nine percent business as usual can't perpetuate. We've got to stop. But yes, here are the tools, here are the case studies, here's mm. the evidence. So very very positive because we can very rapidly change this whole situation around. We can feed the 10 billion people projected by 2050 in a higher quality, higher, healthier, higher value, equitable system. But we need to change. And this is the whole issue. It's about, yes, we have the knowledge. Nature's given us all the tools. We can do this, but we need to be prepared to change. And that's the big challenge for Homo hubris you know, does it recognise that and does it give itself enough time to make the change? Because, sure, we can accelerate it, but it's still, say, a decade, two decades for a transition and how close to the edge do we go before that becomes impossible? Um, do you think there are people, <clears throat> Walter, who um, – actually, just come get a bit closer. I'm just mm-hmm. going to make sure we capture yeah. you. Yeah, 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 that's better. Okay. That's mm-hmm. cool. Um, do you think there are people who – who not, aren't excited about the opportunity or not excited about the the prospect of um, nutrient dense food um, <laughs> being able to feed you know feed feed ten billion people um, uh, with that nutrient dense food and and be able to improve the quality of the ecology of the world at the same time? Look, uh, I think everybody uh, everybody welcomes it and you know, is saying yes, we can yes. These guys, they're showing us, or nature's showing us, yes, we can regenerate. I think everyone welcomes it and applauds it. But then, of course, they can exploit it in two different ways. They can either say, look, nature's got these solutions, we've got these enthusiasts doing it, Uh, that gives us an excuse for perpetuating business as usual because a business is actually money. And at the moment, I'm making lots of money, you know, like obviously extractive, mining, degrading, there's money to be made, right? And as crises intensify, if anything, food becomes more precious and therefore we get more money. So we're in a situation now where globally we've got a $10 trillion US industrial food system and obviously they're making a lot of money. Farmers get about $2 trillion gross from that 10 trillion, but basically they are paying over 1.2 trillion or thereabouts for inputs. Again, back to that industrial food system. So basically agriculture farmers are running on eight cents in the dollar, you know, 800 out of 10 trillion. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of money. And so there's a lot of incentive not to, to perpetuate business as usual. And, of course, there's lots of money to buy political favours, subsidies, protection, externalities, all of which completely fraudulently misrepresent the truth of what's going on, the degradation. There's now... then. So the question is, yeah, will that power system, that $10 trillion, decide in its own long-term interest to change, lose that financial advantage or is it looking short term to say while we're making money let's keep on doing it in which case yeah we're going to have a significant collapse going to hit the wall Uh, well 
actually it's already happening in mm. a more insidious way because, in fact, that $10 trillion a year industrial food system has driven a 20 to $30 trillion a year industrial disease industry. And, of course, that's where all the medical, the pharmacological, all the disease responses, reactions are now using so much of global GDP in the Western world particularly, okay? So basically we're now using vast sums of money. In the US health system is 18% of GDP, but it's only covering about 50% of the population. The poorer 50 just miss out. It's growing at six, eight percent per year, depending what you know diseases are. But you know whether it's cancers or diabetics or heart disease or autoimmune, and it just just goes on and on. We've had this exponential explosion of self-induced diet-related diseases. Nineteenth century was all about fighting bacteria, you know, natural things that kill people, pandemics. I mean, we haven't given the pandemics away, they're coming back. <laughs> but the point is the 20th century, the answer was we thought we had, you know, solved those mm. natural diseases, but we've induced our own diseases. Our food, our industrial food now has less than a third of the nutrients that were there pre-Second World War, but the whole nutritional integrity, much more than the nutrient density, the whole nutrient integrity, the balance of 40, 50 essential elements that we need for our biochemistry, we need for our preventative health, has been completely bastardised. So we're now getting food saturated with NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sulfates, sodium, if it's acid, aluminium, cadmium and what have you, but none of the essential trace elements and micronutrients that we need for our health. And so this is actually, you're saying we're going to war. Well, we already have, we're well and truly entrenched because we've got a 20 $30 trillion industrial disease industry that's just cannibalizing us and our children and our future. <clears throat> it's pretty, I mean, it's, a, it, it's again, it's a great example of a, a lovely business model you know, money-wise, it's money, very, it looks lucrative. very lucrative. Very, very lucrative. Create the illness through shit food, well, and then, you're, you're and, then and then have the so-called solution or the cure, or not even the cure. Well, but you're, the, you're driving demand. You yeah. see, and you think of look, there's a person, and they work their whole life, and for whatever they work, and then you say, look, I've captured their total energy, both in working to produce things, mm. but then I've also captured their um, income because basically now they're locked into these diseases and I can just I can just bleed them from the disease point of view. So, the, yeah, they spend a lot, I don't know what percentage of, a, of, a, of an income a family might spend on food, and obviously there's good food and bad food, but then that's that's a you know, reasonable proportion, I imagine, again, depending on well, the Well, it used diet. to be about, you know, naturally 25%, but because the industrial food system has been making food cheaper and cheaper, cheaper yeah. it's basically now 10%, mm. uh, down to about 10% like in Australia, but other countries are on average probably about 14, 13, 14, 15% industrial countries, right? Mm. Poorer countries, of course, they're still spending much more on their food. But basically, 
because we're getting cheaper food in every sense, lower quality food, the actual money has moved into the health uh, disease industry. So now we're putting 18% in America of GDP into health costs for Mm. 50% of the population. And just on the GDP, it was it was great um, timing because I spoke with um, Catherine Trebek, um, Trebek, sorry, um, uh, this morning. Yeah, and you met her just there before. Uh, well, me, you met her yep. at the conference, the RCS conference, which we'll get to. Um, we talked a lot about um, GDP. Yeah, and the fact that it's a really an outdated measure. It was. It's never you know because it does measure. The illness industry, yeah. you know, the prison, yeah. very lucrative prison yeah, system. Look, you know, mean, it's, it's not a measure. I mean, we've just used it as a well, fraudulent fig leaf. Yeah. A reference uh, point. No, but, but it isn't. It's, it is just a, an activity mm. measure, but it's got no value behind mm. it because, see, what happened, as I mentioned before, all the subsidies, all the protection, all the externalisation of the real costs and input, input costs and consequences... None of that's on the balance sheet. So it's just been basically fraudulently represented to say, oh, we are growing because we are running faster. You know, we're spending more, but whether it's good spending, bad spending, damaging or healthy doesn't come into the equation. So it's, it's, it's no... I mean, G, I mean, we've known for right from the beginning GDP was not a measure. It was just a pure economic indicator of activity but had no value associated and we politically extracted it and exploited it as a quasi de facto value statement which it isn't well as Catherine said you know politicians and prime ministers and presidents go to Gatherings in you know it's like who's got the biggest GDP? Yeah, well, yeah that's yeah, kind of the measure of success. Uh, yeah, exactly, and <laughs> if you think that Russia's GDP has gone up because it's invaded Ukraine, you see, it, it's 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 a it's fraudulent. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just obscene, right? Mm. Let's get back to thirty-five. You, I think you win the award for the most uh, the, for taking up the longest period of time before I actually started your your own regenerative journey, uh, Walter, um, as the because I usually get to it in the first mm-hmm. five or so minutes, um, but it's fantastic. But, but it was a well, that was a really that was a wonderful way to start. I want to take you back to um, your early early years, your your boyhood, if I can. Okay. Yeah. Um, where do you, where where do you want to look? Uh, okay. Well, very very much. I came to Australia when I was a little boy, about six. You know, when I came to Australia as a, from uh, from. Germany. We we basically left Germany, Eastern Germany, and uh, came to Australia. And basically, we were living in the Blue Mountains in Sydney. I grew up in, and basically, I just then grew up in the bush. You know, I just just actually, you know, as a little kid, and yeah, out in the bush, and just absolutely fascinated, of course, with bush and nature, and it's just absolutely wonderful. Siblings? Uh, I've got two, uh, old, two older brother and an older sister, but yeah, look, I was just out in the bush and. And just, yeah, understanding those sorts of natural processes and the insects and the birds. And, I mean, it's just stunning. 
And so basically, um, I, I started university very early at 16, and I was very keen on doing forestry, right? So, really so let's just stop. So 16, is that, was that early? Did you, like, do your... Was, did you, you were pretty smart and you, like, got through it all? Well, early. yeah, I think I got through. I might have been a bit difficult, so they just put me up into <laughs> higher grades so they get rid of me. But the point is... Pushed that, you through the system. But, yeah, but basically, uh, and I was very keen then in uh, science, yeah. you know, like, yes, so I was very good at science and then basically, but I was very excited about natural land management, you know, yep. um, and so forth. So I did forestry um, and, yeah, very much looking at the ecology of forest. I then started in 1970 uh, working for the Forest Research Institute. Uh, but I, at university I really got involved in a very deep way with microbial ecology, right, the whole... Um, soil microbial ecology because as we've talked about that's really where the whole functional life and dynamics of you know life on land uh, mm. works and and then yeah was doing research from very much looking at diseases forest diseases um, we had dieback diseases mm. you know Jarrah forest New England tablelands and these complex Diseases, and then what's driving it? There was always, of course, uh, you know, fungi involved, or, or agents, insects, or fungi involved as agents. But it was not not the agents alone. It was what's the whole ecological role of these diseases in the succession and health of forests. And then I went to Tasmania in '72, very much to look at a, a regrowth dieback of eucalypts, some of the world's leading hardwood forests, most productive hardwood forests, uh, Eucalyptus obliqua regnans dieback in Tasmania. And again, looking at what was driving and what was causing, what were the threats and consequences of this dieback. Just, but, on, just on that one, mm-hmm. was that um, dieback happening in the forest and ecology with not much obvious Disturbance by by yes. man. Yes. So I know dieback at say Burua. Yeah. 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 Say three percent. Yeah. So it was, that was mainly super. Well, from understand super phosphate and pasture and yes. isolation. Yes. That, that was all part of it. That yeah. super phosphate pastures, mycorrhizal yeah. destruction, and then dieback was part of the New England dieback. It's part of our like, box woodland yeah. grazing dieback. Yeah. But no, in Tasmania it was pretty much natural forest. They had been logged, but in a pretty minor way back in the 1890s, et cetera, and turn of the, yeah, turn of the century. But no, it was pretty, pretty, I mean, these were natural thing, and that's the whole point, that here, what role is this dieback in the natural succession of, in a sense, these eucalypt, mm-hmm. uh, regrowth forests into cool, temperate rainforests, a little bit what we talked about in the rainforest gully here. And it was then very clear that, look, this is actually a successional development of the forest. So in nature, in fact, there's no such thing as disease. And this is pretty profound, you see. We don't have diseases. We just have growth and we have biodegradation and cycling of those organisms that are no longer competitive in growth. 
but obviously it's making space and it's providing the nutrients for the more growth. So, you know, you don't think of it as a disease. It's just a natural, everything that grows biodegrades. You know, you've got to always see that as balance. And this is just biodegradation. These are the agents of biodegradation. So they came to understanding dieback as, yeah, not just here's a disease, how do we kill the fungus, but how do we understand this dynamic and how do we use that dynamic and grow with it? And understanding it, of course, I came very much involved then with the symbiotic fungal relationship, you know, the, that interface between the dead mineral soil and the living biosystem through this fungal interface. And it's the same fungal interface that we talked about just before about creating the soil, these mycorrhizal networks that grow 98% of plants have these mycorrhizae and they extend the root system, profound effects and benefits. Up to 25,000 kilometres of fungal hyphae per cubic metre of healthy soil, extending root ecologies very intelligently into that soil. Massive stories to tell. Just to, just on that one. So, do you know what kind of distances has been have been measured that um, a tree or a plant can access minerals via that fungal highway? Uh, do we uh, do we know kind of? Yeah, that? yeah. Look, we, we we know, and it varies. But I mean, yes, we've got. But these, these are big myco- mycelial networks, mm-hmm. and they extend. It can extend hundreds of meters, mm-hmm. right? But obviously they're limited by the food source because they need nutrients from the plant, the sugars, to feed them. But the networks and extent, the largest organism on the planet is in fact a mycorrhizal network in Oregon and it's basically, you know, hectares, te- I mean, tens and tens of mm. hectares in size, right? Um, but it's much more, more profound than that because it's just actually interface between the dead mineral world, often toxic world, and life. And it's this membrane interface. Each of these, each, you know, centimetre of these hyphae, of course, a membrane tube, and they've got a selective, intelligent uptake of nutrients across that tube. They solubilise, access, uptake, cycle nutrients across that tube. And, of course, they're doing that selectively, intelligently. And so that's where the whole nutritional integrity of plant systems uh, comes from, you know, that selective, intelligent uptake, active uptake across these membranes. And, of course, that's then governed the nutritional integrity of the fungi but also the plants. And, of course, we've just evolved as basically herbivores mm-hmm. living on those plants. So it's exactly our nutritional integrity as well. So, you know, where there's 96 natural elements in the periodic table, some 40, 50 are seen in biology. We, we know about 30 of them and have identified about 35 as essential nutrients. Some Most of them as trace elements, parts per billion, but they all have fundamental mm-hmm. things. And it's these fungi that are giving us the integrity, the right forms, concentration, ratios, balances of these 40, 50 essential nutrients. And that's governing our preventative health. And of course, our industrial agriculture since the Second World War has effectively destroyed that mycorrhizal network 
because of cultivation, over-fertilization, you know, biocides, bear fallowing. And, of course, we are now living on a completely corrupted, different nutrient integrity or no nutrient integrity. It's a totally different nutrient uptake process. Let's get back to the forest in Tassie. Um, I love that it always gets back to that. And I'm really – and and I've heard you speak a number of times, Walter, and that's the wonderful thing about you is that you're not isolated in your thinking just about soil and, you know, soil life and everything that you know the the, the the end of the day you know we eat food mm-hmm. you know everything on this on this on this planet eats so to speak um uh or consumes and um and and you know that's that's been from the humans yeah, our species point of view that's been one of the that it has been the biggest issue i believe is the fact that we are um uh uh, we get, we are getting sicker as a as a <clears throat> as a oh, species, yeah. aren't we? You know, yeah. and, and, and and it is. It just comes back to the soil, and it's so simple. It really is simple, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But, but but there's so many forces, seen and unseen. And when I say that, there's like obviously the there's the biological forces and or or the um, mm. you know human intervention that um, is complicating it and keeping us sick. Yeah, well, look, I mean, and as you say, it's a war that we're really well entrenched in Mm. against ourselves, you know, like we are our own enemy killing ourselves. Mm. As I said, we've got 8 billion people on the planet now, you know, 2022. Uh, There's still about 800 million people hungry, more Mm. so now because of um, Ukraine and what have you, but no different from what it was, you know, in 1960. But we've now got some two to three billion people that are overweight and obese. So, you know, we've created that whole health issue. And there's probably, I mean, not cumulative is it, but there's probably four billion of us on this planet that is basically subclinically malnourished. You know, we are nowhere near getting the nutrition we want. And, of course, as a consequence, we've got this explosion of this, yeah, $20 trillion plus industrial disease industry, right? All these diseases are being driven by that lack of nutritional integrity in our food. I love Joel Salton's quote, you know, you either choose to pay the farmer now or the doctor later. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. the undertaker later because the doctors, <laughs> the doctors are still in the same disease business where they True. diagnose a disease and yeah. then they can just say, yes, I can prescribe these drugs, but yeah. all these self-induced diseases we don't have solutions for. No, no, that's just a perpetual cycle. Um, back to the forest in Tasmania, so you... Um, you, you were involved in um, studies down there. Yeah. And then where did you... Okay, well, look, basically I was, did, yeah, my postgraduate work down there yeah. and really came to that understanding that, look, these are actually the fungi driving the succession mm. of this planet, both from soil formation, pedogenesis, you know, 420 million years ago, but also that accelerated succession. And it's actually these fungal, you know, life down under that is actually the basis of this succession and dieback is just part of that cycling and of course as the regrowth forest you know 80 19 year old regrowth forest is now getting to a 
plateau stage, it's site-limiting plateau, it's then stressed, it dies, and cool temperate rainforest then replaces. So it's part of a natural succession. Uh, we can then understand that, we can manage that. But what had happened is I'd been extremely then focused now on fungi, not as disease organisms, but these symbiotic relationships, but also these nutritional you know, bases. So then I was very, very fortunate. I got a contract with CSIRO again. I mean, okay, forest research had been taken over by CSIRO, but I got another contract with CSIRO, Tropical Crops and Pastures in Brisbane, and it was basically in the 70s, and it was basically the oil shock. And the answer was, how are we going to actually create the nutrition for tropical Australia? You know, we had basically brought in clover and superphosphate in southern Australia to actually, you know, artificially create productivity in agriculture in southern Australia. And so the tropical crops and pastures challenge was how do we actually, yeah, reboot or enhance the nutrition productivity of northern Australia. Uh, particularly they're looking at how do we bring legumes into northern Australia, are there exotic legumes and plants, or how do we enhance that natural productivity? And, of course, they were then very interested what was the role of these mycorrhizal fungi and possibly making nutrients, phosphorus particularly, more available to make those tropical rangelands more productive. So then I had sort of some very interesting work looking at, yeah, the, the microbial ecology of northern rangelands, savannah rangelands, and, of course, that was coming then into the whole grazing ecology management, you know, the whole succession of those forests, but also the role of these native mycorrhizae, and we actually had a wonderful opportunity to look at that whole natural mycorrhizal ecology of northern Australia. Did you do you think you guys did a better job at contributing positively to that ecology up there than say the um, pretty general um, rolling out of clover and superphosphate in the okay. south? But the, um, well, uh, yes and no, right? Uh, yes, in a sense, by understanding that system, mm. we sort of said no. This. The idea of introducing an exotic plant per se isn't the answer. These systems are growing very, very in very productive ways, as I used in the rainforest example from Fraser Island, which was work I was doing at the time, right? So, no, no, we've just got to basically get our foot off nature, understand what makes these grasslands function so productively naturally, and how do we enhance that rather than can we come in as homo hubris and actually change, you know, the whole biota, etc., by some exotic thing. I think the understanding clearly is this, just as disease is an aberrant, the idea of I'm bringing an exotic plant into, you know, turn this whole thing into a Garden of Eden is pretty naive as well, right? So I think that was that understanding but also just understanding the power of this natural, unique soil microbial ecology in creating this system, but also regenerating it. Okay, so then after that tropical crops and co uh, contract, because then it was all postdoctoral contract work, 
Um, I had another contract with uh, Division of CSR Soils, again in Brisbane. We followed on, but there we were looking at actually directly regeneration. How do we use these mycorrhizal symbioses to regenerate degraded wastelands, arid wastelands, mining wastes, you know, really primary moonscapes? Yeah. And how do we actually actually go back pedogenesis, soil formation, to actually use these fungi as building blocks for building soils and building biosystems. And so that was work with the CSO Division of Soils, following on from the tropical crops and pasture work. So tropical crops and pasture work, um, you were well-versed in, I guess, um, uh, soil biology and, 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 and so on by then. But did that was that like a stepping stone into the more serious, specific, extreme... Degraded soils that you then moved into. That, that yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, that, that will obviously partly was funding, you know. Like, I mean, Syro would, then, of course, had to sort of get grants to do mm. projects. So, yeah, we, we basically got funding for that regeneration work. Mm. But basically, the tropical crops and pasture story was already then coming clearly that, mm. no, we've got to manage these natural ecologies and then. You know, the work of basically um, grazing ecology and, you know, palatability. And, and it was looking then less at just exotics being the answer to say, how do we understand the natural ecology of these grasslands mm -hmm. and rain? Yeah. So, what were some of the techniques or, or, or recommendations that you gave that you. Oh, I guess gave to whoever you needed to give them to or well, kind of well, okay. what, what, well, what rolled out as yeah, a consequence? It's not, it's not so much... Well, we, we did this study to say, look, this is what the microbial ecology of these soils mm. are from a mycorrhizal point of view. We had about 300 different isolates and we looked at the rel the capacity of these fungi to stimulate. It was the stylosanthes, a group of tropical legumes that we were looking at. But overall, the biggest study was that, yes, these are critically important their activity is, of course, often very, very low because of our management practices. So it became much more, look, how do we actually maintain management practices to keep their natural health going? Um, and then other things like, yeah, we don't need to bring legumes into this system. In fact, there's quite a lot of nitrogen fixing going on, but these are extremely efficient things like the azotobacter, the azospirillium, these are um, fungi and bacteria on, and blue-green algae on the root, mm. in the rhizosphere of roots, fixing nitrogen from the air um, and giving those systems, those tropical grasslands, enough nutrients, enough nitrogen without actually needing that legume. On top of that, of course, there were the acacias, you know, the mulgas and the casuarinas, and then basically there's nitrogen sources from, you know, mm. looking at the whole nitrogen economy. So the idea that, yes, we, we have to bring a legume in, an exotic legume to change that nitrogen became less, you know, less important. It was really more, and then grazing ecology became important. It's, look, how do we keep healthy soil structures Andrew Voisson's work in the 50s. Who was that? Andrew? Andrew Voisson, okay. because that's where then the savory work follows on from. Andrew Voisson from France, he then talked about all the cell grazing, you know, the need to 
graze, rest, cycle, and of course using the animals, the herbivores, as a major nitrogen input through their urine and dung, right? So that was all part of understanding grazing ecology from those fundamental processes. And then, yeah, then we moved on to, okay, how do we actually regenerate degraded land? Mm-hmm. And then you, where did you move? Did you move physically or what was the next sort of step? Well, to- basically, that, that was, so that was the second contract in Brisbane. But then after that, basically, um, personally, I, I sort of found that, yeah, we were doing good research, but it was, wasn't being used, wasn't being applied. So the whole question of, yeah, here's this whole R&D, but where's the system change? What was it? What, 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 oh, well, what, look, what was... I, I think, look, this is the same statement we made earlier that, look, yes, here's a knowledge, but basically, uh, yeah, this is cutting-edge knowledge, understanding, but the, the overall system was, no, no, we're grazing, we've been here grazing, we want to keep on grazing, the interest the power base you know different uh, it, i guess a different it doesn't different yeah. measures of success or, or yeah or so, so basically this becomes genders. a case of do you change the industry at that stage no the industry was quite happy to say look yep okay well thank goodness yeah dieback isn't a problem thank goodness yeah we're getting enough nutrient nitrogen nutrition from these natural sources let's just keep the system, yeah. business as usual rolling right I did go, um, I mean, very interesting, I went to China then, working with the Academia Sinica in China, Nanjing, for a short period in 1984. And again, I was there because I was looking at, okay, well, what role did these mycorrhizal symbioses play in nature, but also in these agricultural systems that have sustained themselves mm-hmm. for basically centuries, Right. I mean, China was unique because basically it's maintained over 500 million people for 4,000 years on some pretty poor soils, in fact. And so the question is, yeah, what role did these mycorrhizal nutrient cycling processes play? And I I couldn't study those very well in Australian agriculture because the activities were often very low. But the question was, yeah, is Chinese agricultural land management had it naturally sustained itself using them, which was the case, right? So we were able to confirm that, very interesting. And then what are some of the management processes that enhance, um, you know, symbiotic associations and nutrient cycling and so forth? So it was very interesting work in China. Was that, uh, I guess, it, it supported 500 million people for how many years? 4,000 yeah, years? Yeah, for 4,000 4, years. They've sustained that because of their high cyclic, you know, yeah. because every, or in the whole culture, East Asia, not just China, Korea, India, Japan, you're returning everything back into the soil. Mm. And so then you're basically enhancing these cycles. And of course, the fungi are the key drivers, agents of that cycling. Did you see even in the 80s a, um, a, ch- a change in practice or identifying that, you know, the practices then were not the same as 4,000 years ago in terms of industrial oh, yeah. you know, fertiliser use? It was, was there... it was fascinating. I mean, like, it's, it's a bit poignant to speak, talk about it now because, see, that was had been Chinese traditional agriculture mm. for 4,000 years and had sustained itself and... Obviously, the evidence there's a population. Mm-hmm. 
But that was 84 and Deng Xiaoping, I mean, we had the, had the gang of four in the late 70s, but then Deng Xiaoping had taken over and, of course, they were then looking at industrialization and then very much embracing Western agricultural methods. And so they were moving into actually high nutrient import agriculture. And, of course, we had the debates about the risks of that. Uh, the oxidation, the consequences of the very, very high amounts, of particularly of nitrate, that they were going to were planning to use, but certainly that that progressed. But I mean, obviously, since then, yes, they have actually significantly degraded the structure of their soils, just as the rest of the Western world has, and so now that, that's actually a big, big issue for China's future food security. So then back to Australia after that? Yeah, and after, okay, and after that I came back to Australia, but then basically I uh, made a fundamental switch. I actually uh, joined initially John Kerran, the Minister for Agriculture, and then later on John Bennett, Senator John Button, the Industry Minister, Industry Technology Minister. And so I had a very interesting sort of oh, 12 years there working on, yeah, how do we commercialize innovation you know how do we actually look at all this r&d this innovation but how do we actually you know basically apply it to actually change systems and build competitiveness did you pick up your stuff from the years before and go hey look at this you know oh yeah no 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 well well yes i mean obviously yeah. all that experience yeah. but certainly yes in agriculture mm. with john Kerrin, definitely mm. um yeah I, I deregulated the australian meat and livestock corporation for example you know to so say look we've got to privatize this they've got to sort of drive this as a mm. new you know protein industry for the future for asia and so then, because prior to that had been a pretty mollycoddled statutory marketing authority, you know, public service sort of thing, and it was then privatised into the AMLC. That was 1985. Um, wow. And I, I was involved with John Kerrin. I mean, John Kerrin obviously put it through, but I was working for him, doing it. But the point is that, yeah, it was trying to get then how do we apply this knowledge to make Australia competitive and to, you know, to really lift the industry and was involved with Paul Keating partly on the Banana Republic sort of issue of, you know, like, hey, if we don't lift our game, we're going to, you know. So it's how do we use innovate? How do we drive innovation? What are the barriers to innovation right across the board? Mm-hmm. Because agriculture, as we have said, is often stuck in business as usual. And so while we've had world-class research, it hasn't actually often translated into the system changes that we need, right? Did What are some examples of what you were able to sort of... Um those system changes that you, you were able to achieve in that time, well, MLA clearly. Well, yeah. Well, yes, failure though, because basically, you know, like while we gave them the means to be, you know, competitive and look at, okay, we're going to be a key protein supplier into the. We're still now no different. Still selling red meat, raw red meat in plastic bags to markets at a commodity price. You know, where's our value capture, our industry, all that from it, right? Where's our health values? So, so basically, yeah, no, we, we haven't. This business as usual hasn't been willing to change, right? 
Did, were you were you on to the health thing then? Uh, um, no, well, yes. Environmental did. health and, yeah, well, you know, we, we had, Well, no, we, all the nutritional integrity work we did in CSRO yeah. in the 1980s. We used to have a CSRO division of human nutrition, you know, which is, again, very focused on... Is that on, still there? No, no, that got buried very quickly. Um, <laughs> How long ago? Oh, that got buried in the, yeah, mid-80s because, well, again, there's a... Come on, no one's going to listen to this, Walter. Nobody, so, nobody to <laughs> no, but look, basically, no, it was, it, was, it was putting evidence, it was putting evidence of these consequences in, in a too stark a way that wasn't able to be negated mm. and it came into legal issues as well, you know, liabilities, and, of course, then... Uh, rather than the Commonwealth losing court cases, it was easier to disband in the information, you know. But that's a, but that then, that has now become a national liability in terms of oh, yeah. health. Oh yeah, totally, totally. Oh yeah, totally, totally. No, and, no, totally. And, and I guess you know it's hard to make people accountable or or government well, bodies thirty years later. Well, see, okay, the, the, the situation was well. Again, I don't want to go into it too deeply, but the point is that see, we, all our health statistics are actuarial; they're built over average across the Australian population. On an average, is you know like we're okay, but in an average, there's hot spots. There's you know areas which are critically you know, just. Deadly, literally. And, of course, what this work was doing is showing, yeah, look, these hotspots are directly associated causally with these factors, right? But that direct causal association creates liabilities. And, of course, the people who are liable don't like to have that. they rather have actuarial data. And this is a classic case of externalisation of responsibility, right? We just hide under GDP data or we hide under mean uh, national health statistics, right? Um, so much more in there, Walter. Yeah, yeah, look, I mean, that, yeah, but, but... Yeah, 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 so much more in there, yeah. <laughs> Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around The Kitchen Table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash The Kitchen Table. And if you're not totally satisfied with the value of your membership and wish to cancel it within the first two months, we will give you a full 100% refund, no questions asked. Now let's get back to this week's episode. But, okay, so basically I was there and then... um so that that was very interesting. Obviously, then government changed and things weren't yeah. that strategic. So, Kieran, just remind me, Kieran, it was Kieran he, and Button and then uh, Keating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was all Labor because Kieran was under. Yeah, war. but then right? ninety six, obviously, the government changed. Howard came in, yeah, and right. then of course things lost their you know the edge or the you know, the strategic national interest issue just dropped off the thing it was just more administration so then basically I moved to retirement so then I retired um, in in, well, in 20 years ago to actually you yeah. must have retired in your 30s did you no 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 I, no because I, just, <laughs> I, I, I no 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 I graduated in 69 you see so wow. this this is already now yeah. so I retired early 2000s 
Um, My quick bit of maths, um, you're a very healthy man, Malta, aren't you? You're like no, no, no. You are. Old. You're very. Oh, no, I'm you're very so, old. I'm very no, no, old. That, yeah, well, yeah. I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying no, but, how old, but but, yeah. you, but but for your age, you are yeah. amazingly vital. Oh, is that you? Is that is that because of your diet? Is it because of your thinking? Mm-hmm. Is it your enthusiasm for life? Is it the air you breathe? No, no. Look, I, the I people have, in your life. I, what is it? What's your secret? No, I, I'm, I'm no, I'm no secret. I'm, I've got vulnerabilities like everybody else, you know. So, but no, it's not me that's important. It's just the no. It is. It is about you. No, no, no. no, if no. You, don't be too humble. Um, I'm, I'm just interested. You know, yeah, like yeah. Um, you don't need to tell me what you get up in the morning and eat. But no. but what, what are some well, of the look, things I mean, that, that, that keep Walter no, ticking? No, obvi- okay, okay. So let, let's come into that whole health thing. Okay. So what becomes critically important, as we say, yeah, it's that nutritional integrity of the food that we eat is critically important, right? And so then you say, well, what governs that nutritional integrity? And yes, here are these, um, yeah, these soil interfaces down under, you know, that, that selective intelligent uptake of nutrients you know, and uh, exclusion of toxins from that world down under. And so then you say, well, where are the farming systems that actually enable that and encourage that? And, of course, yeah, that's the natural fungal interface, right? So we've got to really rebuild agricultural agroecologies, regenerative agricultures, with that as the fundamental basis for human health and productivity, resilience, etc. right? And, and so that's the, and so now you're saying, look, okay, well, where are we going with our agriculture and how much of it is contrary to that? You know, how much of it is just moron, you know, toxic, uh, degrading, but also losing that whole food health value, right? So that, that was always there. But obviously then, yeah, early 2000s, I retired um, and basically said, no, no, I want to get back into more science but not as a research thing much more the applied Mm. changing things with science and then formed a little group called healthy soils australia because that was in the very very early days of you know like that recognition that look soils are actually the the crucible for the life on land our health hydrology everything and then, of course, then the whole carbon story unfolded, climate change, you know, carbon drawdown. So we evolved a long time, you know, you know, early 2000s, setting up that whole healthy soils message. Um, very much involved then, you know, like when the Rudd government came in and the initial carbon, you know, climate story. Were you, were you funded? Did you get some no, funding? No, no, this was, was, was all independent. Just an, then yeah. just an NGO. Yeah. From then on, you see, because once you, now it's all changed. Once you get funded, you're basically you're you're and owned by the yeah. funding criteria. And no, no, we've always been independent. But then uh, just following that on, then Michael Jeffrey, the ex-Governor General, retired in 2008 and then he requested and asked whether I could uh, join him, you know, like on the, his Source for Life um, mm. message, right, and that whole narrative. And so we were very, very effective over the next 10 years, documenting case studies, you know, here's the innovative leaders, here's the benefits, but also just progressing the awareness of this whole soil health and, yeah, soil regeneration message. Um, very much because of Michael, we're able to talk to ministers and what have you. 
But And, of course, nobody disagreed with the message, but I think it's, again, this point that, yes, you can talk to the blancmange, but nothing happens. It's just very sticky and sweet, <laughs> but nothing comes out, you see? And so that's... That's the point. Yes, Michael, wonderful. You're doing great work, wonderful talking points. Thank you very much, etc. Keep up the good work, etc. But business as usual. So, see, um, Charlie, the biggest issue is that, yeah, um, we've got such enormous locked-in inertia in the system. Uh, our good friend Charlie Massey, for example, right, was doing his PhD at um, Fenner School, here at ANU, and again was looking at, look, yeah, here is the innovators. Why isn't the change happening? Why isn't it extending? And so the inertia in the system to change. So, again, we have the knowledge. We have evidence. It's all there, the case studies. You know, it's all there. But the point is the inertia, the protection of the status quo is still dominant, right? How what what's the what's the what's the trick not the trick but how can we overcome that inertia? Or? Well, okay, it's a big. I mean, it's a, a tougher. I mean, yes, we can and we must, but it's a tougher debate, right? Because the answers we have literally given, yeah, fifteen twenty years. The information is there. The evidence is there. All pro bono. All you know. I mean, just people say, look. I need data with three decimal points, and no, they've never funded it. So, but it doesn't matter. You, the reality is there, right? Mm. And the answer is no. But business as usual still perpetuates itself. And now, what's happening is that actually, yeah, systems are starting to collapse, right? And we knew that from 2015 onwards. We were very much involved with the Paris climate. Story, you know, the negative net accounting to try and again stimulate change, make a you know commercial viable basis for change. Can farmers get paid for their carbon on an open mm. commercial market, global market? But again, I mean, that then got bastardized, right? And and so change is not happening. It's talk, 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 but no no real change. But now things are starting to fall apart, you know, like whether it's droughts, floods, wildfires, you know, these dangerous hydrological extremes. From 2015 then onwards, we actually moved much more into the area of regenerate earth, right? We're really saying, look, this is now lifeboat stuff, right? How do we actually build the lifeboats, the the blueprints and models to actually just regenerate, you know, like stop trying to change business as usual and the status quo? How do we just build the viable lifeboats for regenerating biosystems? So when did Regenerate Earth, when, was, when did that come and about? So basically, the, the, well, we, we formed it in 2018, yeah. but basically, you know, after Paris and then on, you know, then we sort of said, look, here is, we've got to be much more just building grassroots empowerment lifeboats uh, sectors. Uh, we then started working in India, Andhra Pradesh in India. Again, uh, Vijay Kumar there, very leading, saying, look, here's zero budget natural farming. It's more it's just good, logical, natural farming thing, but applying that. But really, how do we just get system change, grassroots happening, right? And, and so then, yeah, we moved into that regenerate earth space. Uh, also partly from a climate point of view, as I mentioned right at the beginning, yes, CO2 is a symptom of the oxidation of all the carbon from our 
landscape, and then in the last 70 years from fossil fuel use, of course, but it's only a symptom, right? The real issue is that we've degraded the structure of the soil, we've completely degraded its hydrology, and it's that hydrological uh, change which is really going to kill us, right? It's 95% of the heat dynamics of the planet is driven by water, Okay, and we are now, and we've known it scientifically, but basically we are in all sorts of trouble with dangerous hydrological climate extremes accelerating. You know, floods, cyclones, hurricanes, aridification, you know, droughts, wildfires. And they're the things that are now marching over biosystem after biosystem. How do we, what a, I wrote some notes the other day there, how does... This 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 could be a short short answer, or, or it could be three days. How does biology influence hydrology generally? Well, look, it's, it's nice. better, look do you, and feel free to use a whiteboard. Do you want to use a whiteboard? Yeah, probably bypass that a little bit. But, <laughs> but no, look. Uh, well, okay, let's do it. No, no, Come no, on. Okay, let's do it because <laughs> no, no, it, it's it's fundamentally see biology. It's the cut soil. Okay, the whole. Message: The simple message, the simple point of action is mm-hmm. regenerating the earth's soil carbon sponge. That's it, mm. sponge. And once we can regenerate the sponge, we have hydrology, we have biofertility, right? I'll go to that in a second. And the only point is that basically we've got to say where is the point of agency to rebuild the sponge? And that is with farmers Mm. grassroots mm. everywhere around the planet just doing it, right? Land managers doing it, right? And it's it's very simple. And got, to, got to make sure that mic's cloud might bring yeah, that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. Okay. Okay. That's good. It's very yeah, simple. Bring it as, as we said with pedogenesis, okay, as we said with pedogenesis, we start off with a rock. Okay, we just start off, and the rock is made of mineral particles, and of course it might be phosphorus, it may be calcium, it's silicon or whatever, right? And of course that rock is inert, because if you put a drop of water on that rock, of course it just runs off. And so basically this is where we were 420 million years ago, where basically... You know, like the, the land was basically hard, bare, mineral rock. Water used to run off. Some nutrients might have bleached, but it was basically inert. And it was the fungi that then basically growing onto this rock and solubilizing nutrients from that rock that ended up creating what basically ended up the same mineral particles... But now they were, sort of in a sense, broken up. So it was really a matrix, a three-dimensional matrix of mineral particles with then organic detritus, which is largely the fungal residues, you know, from the fungal cell walls left behind, 
keeping it separate. And that's, in a sense, what we see as the Earth's soil carbon sponge. Is that like, well, that like, like a glue? Was it kind of like a... Uh, OK, no, no, just... A, well, yes... Well, I mean, it was gluing and not as glue. There's gluing yeah. going on and stuff, yeah. but it's just... If you just sort of take material... OK, here's a rock, I, I grind it up, I've got the mineral particle, I mix it with, you know, organic mm. matter, and there's a mixture, so I've got a loose sponge. Now, basically, the data is very simple. 2.6 to 3.5 grams per cc is the volume-weight relationship of rocks, right? Bulk density. Mm -hmm. And a healthy soil or a sponge like this has got a weight-to-volume relationship of about 1.2 grams per cc. So what straight away we know that up to 60% of this three-dimensional void, this matrix, is nothing. Yep. It's air. It's voids. And, of course, that's all we've done. We've gone from rock to healthy soil, right? So there's our rock. There's our healthy soil. And we've done that by adding nothing, just by these fungi-leaving organic detritus between the mineral detritus. But once we've done that, we've fundamentally changed its functionality. Because now if you put a drop of water onto this, it'll infiltrate, and it's got 60% of the volume where it can be basically retained. And of course that water can be used over time to sustain plant growth. And so when you ask the thing, what is the relationship between biology and hydrology, yep. it's that simple. Is here we've got 99% runoff and loss in, in earth, whereas here we can have 99% infiltration retention, availability for biosystem growth. And the only way that we, I mean, all we've done is actually just made a detritus about it put this organic detritus. So the carbon biology in this detritus is really the thing that builds healthy soils. And the same thing applies for biofertility. For example, if I wanted that calcium iron there, it's unavailable at the moment, mm. right? But now that calcium iron is sort of completely exposed and it's all available for nutrient uptake. So basically I've increased the biofertility I can increase that 80%, not because I've added anything more, simply because I've made what was locked up available. available. Yeah. So straight away you're saying, hey, if this guy's got now hydrology, he's got nutrient availability, he's got rootability, you know, we're in a completely different productive opportunity. So your question, yeah, what relationship is biology to hydrology, it's that simple. Now, plants taking up that water, transpiring that up into the air, are directly cooling the planet. Mm. Every gram of water that transpires takes 590 calories of heat energy to go back up into the air. And that energy comes from the surface cooling the planet. Mm. Okay, and so there, now we're talking about climate, right? So this, this hydrology is also then driving 95% of the heat dynamics of the blue planet. 
And, and so we can regenerate this. See, this is a beautiful thing. We can, the fungi are doing it naturally for 420 million years, and that's the process of now our job in agriculture, how do we rebuild these sponges because our industrial agriculture has been taking it back this way through oxidising the carbon out of that. Taking the carbon out, collapsing the structure, making it denser, harder, less pervious, and moving it back to effectively back to dead mineral rock. So for farmers, Walter, who are looking to move their, yep. their, their soil, yep. you know, developing it, yep. um, so to speak, do we, because in, in our biodynamic workshops we run, we talk about you can, if you want flies in a room, mm-hmm. right, you can either bring a jar of flies and let them go. Yeah. If they want to stay, they will. If they yeah, don't, yeah, they'll fly yeah, the wall. Or you put a bit, a bit of meat in the room. Precisely. You and you bring it. So, yeah. so in that context, how, do, how does someone turn that into that? Do, well, they, do they, the fungus, the fungal... Well, okay, no, well, right. so that's the next thing. I mean, obviously, is the organic matter, which is carbon, and this can only come, obviously, from plants, Right. Yeah. This carbon has to come from plants, taking CO2, water, sunlight, fixing that as sugars, and then, of course, exerting that as carbon. So that's where farmers come in because they're the guys that are in the business of growing plants, uh, yeah. maximising plant growth, right? And so you can grow healthy soils just by maximising plant growth, which is what we do in agriculture ex- exceptionally well. But then what we must do is the carbon that we fix, make sure that that's sequestered and stored in these soils as building the sponge rather than oxidised back to CO2. So and I, that's where our moron processes have all taken <laughs> carbon out of the soil yeah. and back into CO2. And in a sense, uh, again, I can draw this bigger, but see, 60% of the carbon nature already puts down under in roots and root exudates, and all of that carbon should and can readily be put back into stable soil carbon if we have wise land management practices. So what, going full circle back to where we started the interview, Walter, yeah. with the use of, uh, say, acacias up there in the gully yeah. as pioneer plants, yeah. this is why, I, you know, there's yeah. no point having a barren wasteland no. rock, you know, no. No. And, and trying to grow something exotic in there. Yeah. You yeah. start with the pioneer species, yeah. the repair e- plants. Exactly yeah. that. You should have come in acacias, wonderful, strong jackhammer taproot yeah. plants. Yeah. So their rootability, they're forcing their roots in there. They're putting lots of exudates in there. And basically, they're also fixing nitrogen, so they're just adding to the nitrogen. And then they've created the initial sponge, they haven't gotten all the way, but that allows in other successive species. And then you can accelerate this very rapidly. And it's, it's very, very fast. I mean, well, two examples. Basically, if you look at the prairies in America, 9,000 years ago, they were just compacted glacial clay till, you know? Swamp, bug, bogs, just mineral rubbish, right? Mm-hmm. And then in 9,000 years, they've formed these absolutely exquisite prairie soil, 10 metre deep, 10% carbon, you know, these, these absolutely stunning, you know, where we grow corn. But that's 9,000 years. But you can do the calculation. But even better than that, you can go to the Netherlands, right? 
And so the Dutch, basically, they're taking stinky, toxic saline slime from the bottom of the Rhine River, Mm. and then they'll accelerate plant growth through that, and within 10 years, they're growing tulips on it. They're putting that back. They're, they're putting that back out on on, on fields. They're putting it back on fields. Okay, so they've just taken that, that mineral rubbish from the you know sludge from the slime yep. to, from the, the Rhine, Rhine River, yep. and then put this petagen, accelerated petagenesis. within ten years, they're building polder soils, which initially growing tulips, and then bang, they're growing massive food crops from it, right? So there you are. The Dutch are saying, here's petagenesis accelerated 10 years Mm. from, again, mineral toxic waste. I guess, you know, back to practical application here in Australia, a lot of people are taking up multi-species pasture cropping with a variety of different plants and and, and they're sowing them into old pastures or old cropping land, I guess, with the same intention. And and exactly. And so the whole multi-cover cropping strategy is basically, how do I optimise this accelerated succession Mm. to try and drive soil structural improvement? Walter, why that's you... fair enough, but the bottom yeah. line is do less harm, right? If you yeah. reduce the oxidation in the first place, you give these guys a chance. But you can't, I mean, growing multi-species cover crops, but still basically running on the high um, input oxidative system, you know, you, you're just flogging yourself, going nowhere, right? Um while you're standing up with pen in hand, Walter, you did a fantastic um, quadrant diagram. ABC. The ABCD. Yeah, yeah. Don't well, this is, that. I mean, like, we, we, yeah, okay, what we'll try. I'm just going to up there a bit. Yeah, but what, well, I mean, uh, yeah, what, that, what was the basic, this diagram where here, yeah, A was to maximise the growth of plants, which is exactly what we need to do. But then what's very important, and farmers are excellent here, right? So they're getting four marks. But what's... Oh, sorry, and the A stood for... Agriculture. 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 Farming, agriculture, A. Okay. So maximise plant growth, agriculture, which we do. But then the critical thing is what happens to every gram of biomass that agriculture produces? Yeah. And it can either be burn, right, and back to CO2. And obviously that's what we're doing now in industrial agriculture because our... Clearing, burning, cultivation, over fertilization, biocides, bare fallows, Ox- all of them are driving CO2, right? So, so oxidization is, is burning of sources without actually lighting a fire. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. still being oxidized well, exactly, by, by the. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And the point is also, okay, and then instead of doing B, I mean, all of A has to go either to B or it can go to C. Yeah. It can't do anything else. And C is soil carbon, right? Okay, that's the sponge. It can go into C. And basically 60% is already there. And as long as we reduce the oxidation processes, mm. right, then we can get a fair amount of this under. And then, of course, what the grazing ecology story is about, is some of this biomass up here above the ground by animals eating it and excreting it then as biofertiliser and dung and what have you is actually also adding to this carbon pool, right? So basically we've got the fungi working down under, turning it into this sugars and biomass into stable soil carbon, but we've also got herbivores here 
taking it from a habitat which the fungi can't work and through the room and putting it down into the soil as well. So the bottom line is if we can get 60% of A into C, into this sponge building, yeah. then we end up with a thing called D, which is dividends. <laughs> okay, and these are these positive feedback, positive multiplier effects where, as we're saying here, every gram of carbon we put into the soil, we're holding more water, we've got more nutrient availability, we've got more rootability, we've got more resilience, we've got more microbial ecology. Everything is going from hard desert to rainforest. And things in that D, I mean, because of A and C, things in that D, the dividends are often 1 plus 1 equals 3, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, these are synergistic, one yeah. plus one is three. And also very important in nature, this is important, in nature you see D drives A. Back again, you know, yeah. the productivity is driven not by imports but by actually these dividends, right? Mm-hmm. So rainforests get ever more productive, the Dutch soils get ever more productive because of these dividends, not because input. But if you've got D, you don't need B. Mm. You don't need the inputs. Mm. And that's where then the return on investment, zero budget natural farming, where you're getting 200% of yield with 10% of the inputs costs. That's gold, Walter. Um, yeah, yeah, well, it's yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you see, because that just is the, the return on investment That's is right. just outstanding because yeah. I'm getting this yield. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about nutritional integrity, the health value of the food you're producing. Can we, while again, while you've got the whiteboard and pen in hand, um, can we talk about, because um, you did this wonderful diagram on a board at Maloon Creek two and a half years ago yeah. with Damon Gammar, we talked about methane. Methane, very topical. Can we, do you want to, give, oh, you, yeah, you're, no, no. you're well versed in the art of rubbing out whiteboards. Um, uh, I really want to nail this because, and, and, and you do every time, which is awesome. I want to capture it because this, this is a pretty critical, okay, case in point, and I was speaking with Catherine about it this morning. In Ireland, as you're probably well aware, they're trying to take out a million yeah, cow, animal, cow, animals yeah, yeah, because yeah. they think that's going to yeah. reduce emissions. That's yeah. the sort of the, the very siloed thinking about, oh, yeah. less cows, less yeah. fast, less yeah. emissions, yeah. save the planet. Okay, okay. Well, so first of all, we sort of, we see methane as a bad thing because it is a greenhouse gas, right? So there's greenhouse gases and 80% is water vapour, 11% is CO2, and 9% is a whole combination of nitrous oxide, methane, and a whole series of other, you know, sort of trace elements, right? But what we're really making the point here is of the greenhouse gases, it's water vapour that's the dominant greenhouse gas. Hydrology, 95% of the heat dynamics, right? CO2 is sure 11%, but it's water vapor. And, um, and then methane is basically down here as a fairly minor component, right? 9% of. Or nine, or, no, yeah, there's a whole combination. Oh, okay, so right, right. To say. Depends where you are, because it might be 5%, right? So you see, a lot of people uh, would not identify no. water as a greenhouse gas. Of course, of course, yeah. but there's some well, no yeah, argument but, about the science, right? Yeah, this is yeah. basically Tyndall, yeah. 1859. Right, basic stuff, uh, yeah, foundational, yeah. Foundational science, right? 
Okay, so that's methane. So first of all, you've got a context. Oh, well, this is all methane's all about context, right? Yeah. Because we have a message and we beat up on things. We don't take it into context, right? But so, that, and that's also convenient. To, to, you know, oh, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. And then it's, all, it's all misinformation, right? So that's mm-hmm. the first context. Second okay. context is basically all through nature over oh, the last millions of years, methane was 700 parts per billion. Mm-hmm. Okay? 700 parts per billion. So very, very little methane. Of and where, so when was this? How long ago was this? Oh, this is for the last, you know, like in nature, the last 5 million years, right? I mean, it, it's varied before, but just say take 5 million years, right? Get a better view of there. And of course, over that time, we had Billions of herbivores, right? Of uh, uh, bison, wildebeest, parla, uh, you know, cows, caribou. And we're talking across, across the earth, so North oh, yeah, America, yeah, yeah. We're Africa. Right across, this is talking about right across. So we billions of herbivores, right? Billions, yeah. Ruminants. Well, not so all, not all ruminants. Yeah, things like sort of termites. Termites oh, produce okay. prodigious quantities of methane, right? Yep. Yep. Um, swamps, etc. Okay, so this seven hundred billion, and basically the answer is how the question mark is how come with all these billions of people all emitting methane, mm. how come methane was so so just a trace seven hundred parts per billion. So the question is, there must be some reaction that is breaking down methane, you know? You know well, obviously, does nature break down methane? Of course it does, right? Yeah. So that, that makes the first point. So it's, we're, we're basically looking at a production. Because, you know? So if it didn't break it down, that number would just be well, that'd, growing. That would be like oxygen, 21% or something. Yes, like, yeah. yep, yep, yep. You see? Yep. Um, okay. Just continually so basically, rising. So we have this source... And then basically there must be some sink, right? There must be a sink. What is the sink? What is the thing that gets rid of it, right? And then if we look at the 700 parts per billion, we can look at what are the different things that are contributing to it. And we have things like landfill, swamps, uh, uh, geological emissions, volcanoes, right? Yeah. Fugitive emissions. What are they? Oh, that's gas field. I mean, like gas or, you know, just coming out of the ground. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yep. All right. The, yep. Yeah, this is, yeah, methane from anaerobic digestion in the ground, et cetera, sure. et cetera. And these are being, na- Termos, again, nat- natural. Um, yeah, these are natural, natural things. So, okay. And basically, and then we have herbivores. Yeah. Again. And then we can basically have the, all the different animals, and then we have sort of cattle, yep. you know, category, and then we have basically grass-fed cattle, right? Oh, cattle on range, right? Yep. And, and so we can say, oh, look, what are all the different sources of methane that make this 700 parts per billion? And then you find that basically, and you can quantify this, it's about 160 million metric tonnes, right? But even whatever, we're just looking at the percentages. But basically you're sort of saying these cattle are about 10% and the grass-fed cattle are 1% because, in fact, 90% are feedlots, right? 
Okay, so because most of the cattle now in Europe and America in feedlots. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah. so that, that of it, okay, so they're nine. And, that, and that's kind of adjusted for the period of time that they're in the feedlots for, I imagine. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. because yeah. most will, or all cattle will start on grass and yeah. then they'll. Yeah. Okay, so like we know that termites are much more than cattle. They're about forty. Okay. And Those so, bloody termites, we should be killing. We should just wipe them out. Absolutely. And, and we should get rid of all the bloody swamps, you know, like et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and stop those volcanoes from erupting. Stop, ex- ex- <laughs> making the point that grass-fed cattle, context again, uh, of this 1%. Yeah. Right? And again, to remind everyone, it's the grass-fed cattle. Well, I'm assuming the grass-fed cattle in Ireland because my, I think most of those cattle are grass-fed over there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we're, we're talking... Yes, yes. Because talk- they want them out of the fields yeah. and yes, I don't know yeah. how they're going to get rid of them. But Well, they, they yeah. They have to use them as yeah. yeah. Yes. You've got to ask it. But also these feedlots and then, of course, these feedlots are another thing where they've got sewage ponds, right? Yeah. And, and that, that, I mean, that's part of the 9% from the feedlot, but it yes. is sewage here. So, again, like, again, look at the context. There must be something that's sort of basically a sink. And also, hey, let's again, we've got methane as part of glo- greenhouse gases and then grass-fed cattle as part of the whole methane production, right? So we're getting pretty, pretty... Yeah, minor. Yep, yep. But the big issue now is I should have another colour. The issue. Oh. What is? No, no, that's no, it's okay. It's okay. No, we can go. No, no, don't. No, I'm sure there's not. But look, let's let's just go. You go. I'll see one. Yeah. But now the question is, of course, what is the sink? And of course, nature has got this exquisitely because what happens? Where do you have these animals grazing? and putting some methane in the air, they're obviously eating grass. Yeah. You know, but that's by definition the herbivores, right? And so they're maintaining grasslands, right? So this is grass. And grass will basically transpire, wasn't it? It'll transpire water, 20,000 litres per hectare per day. Well, it depends on where you are, of course, but Ireland, yeah, yeah, easy, right? Okay, so this is, in a sense, the system that we're saying we're trying to penalise. So hang on, so that's, uh, that's 20 tonnes. Is that right? 1,000 uh, litres is a tonne. Yeah, per yeah. hectare, yeah, yeah, per hectare. That's a, that's a huge amount. Oh, yeah, the forest will do 40,000. Easy. Right. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so basically... Um, Per hectare, that's 10,000 square... Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's 100 metres by 100 metres. Yeah, over 100 hectare. So basically what happens, you see, in a natural process, there's a thing called the sun, and, of course, that hits this water vapour molecule, which is... Oh, what's up? Yeah, okay, we should do that. So two hydrogen and an oxygen. And it will photo-oxidise this water molecule into hydroxyl ions, OH-, minus plus the hydrogen ion, which then joins up with CO2 to form a bicarbonate ion, right? Oh, okay, so those two H's from yeah. there, O, and then this is sunlight. Yeah, and the CO2 is already in the air. The, yeah, the CO2 comes from CO2 here, right? Yes, yep, it's floating around as well. Yeah, and that's, it's this more complicated yeah. physics. That's the basics but of the it. The point is you've got a thing called the photo-oxidation yeah. of water by sunlight to create... This guy, hydroxyl ions. 
Okay? Now, hydroxyl ions, we know, are the, world, the key cleaner of the atmosphere, right? They're the thing that actually are removing not just methane, but they move carbon particulates, all the pollutant, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, so that they're the laundry of the atmosphere, right? So you've got this process here basically removing all that 700 power, all the methane going up, you know, the source of methane, about 160 million metric tonnes a year. Yeah. And basically this is oxidising all of that, right? This one single process is just cleaning up all of it. So there's a, so there's a, is essentially and that's why it's seven hundred parts per billion and and it's and that is um, uh, relatively stable. In terms yeah, of yeah. Well, yeah. Well, while the sun's stable, while there's transpiration, yeah. it's stable. Yeah, yeah that it, process takes place, right? Yep, yep, yep. So yep. you've got this sink process, right? And this is really what we're saying here: mm-hmm. is this process taking methane or generating hydroxyl ions, yes. the photo oxidation of water generating hydroxyl ion, and the hydroxyl ions, of course, are taking out the methane, and they they effectively do all of this, right, to make this 700 parts per billion. Okay, so what we're now saying is we have this thing here, which they're trying to call Patsy, (laughs) and we used to call her Daisy, but DAISY is actually doing ecosystem services mm. because DAISY will man- maintain about, what, two hectares of green pasture, right? Yep. Each cow, you know, five acres, maintaining a bit more sometimes. Mm. And so, therefore, you could say each cow is generating two hectares of green pasture, which will generate so much water which will generate so much hydroxyl Yep. And then you have to look, you have to do the equation of how much hydroxyl ions to be produced vis-a-vis how much methane has come out of the arse end or the belching of that cow. Yep. Okay? And so that's the question now, if I want to tax a cow for methane, mm-hmm. I have to look at... You have yeah. to look at the A the audit. minus B, right? Yep, 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 yep. So it's A minus B. Yep. And so then you have to sort of say, well, right, actually Daisy, by maintaining these green pastures, is cleaning up 99% of the other methane. Mm. It's only generating 1%. Yeah, okay, I'm with you. Yep, yep. So she's actually she's, she's dealing with her 1% no drummer, and then she's got, she, she, and there's 99% of she's, the rest of her, her function. So basically, so there's, no, that, there's no tax. No, there's an invoice. <laughs> you, can't, that's right. you, you can't have taxes. taxes that's are, right. The opposite of taxes, yeah, that's right. There's a two way street. That's right, right. it's unfair. It's a one way tax. You know, yep, yep. There's an invoice, right? So basically, Daisy is generating enormous ecosystem services. So the minute you put a price on her emissions, as Ireland might do and New Zealand's backed off doing, you ask this question, well, what about B? Who's paying that invoice? And so, because Patsy doesn't have an accountant or bookkeeper 
Oh, Daisy doesn't. But the farmer who looks after her baby. Oh, yeah. No, because she, the farmer is obviously yeah. the person who's getting things. So yeah. the farmer has to be empowering themselves to say, look, okay, this is my animal. You're trying to penalise me for this animal. Yeah. Uh, not, I mean, this is just one thing. I'm, I'm maintaining the system. I'm biofertilising. You know, I'm doing all sorts of other good things. But on, forget all about that. Just in terms of methane accounting, yeah. here's my methane accounting, right? So, so that's, in a sense, the whole argument. So the whole thing is a complete furphy and falsehood and misinformation, deliberate, and this is all confirmed scientifically, deliberately so because we just look at A, mm. methane production, and we're not willing to look at the whole balanced system, whereas nature says, look, here is the system. So, because when you look at, we're talking about not looking at things, clearly the powers that be in Ireland who are making rules, legislation around reducing emissions and thinking yeah. this is the way yeah. to do it. I mean, they're clearly not looking at it. They, no, no. They either don't know it, which I find hard to believe, or they do and they just don't well, want to know no, it. Well, no, I think they're just going on, look, um, methane is on the IPCC thing as a negative. The IPCC hasn't recognised this as a, an offset. Therefore, uh, in simple bureaucratic red tape, yes, I'm, I'm, no, I, hey, if I'm taxing farmers, I'm getting money, I want to get money, right? But why wouldn't the IPCC look at it? Well, the IPCC is just looking at modelling CO2 and its greenhouse consequences, and it sees basically methane as a contributor to that whole CO2 greenhouse. But it's not looking at methane in its ecological in the big, yeah. big picture function. But again, they, they aren't. And, and, and I've got to ask the question... Why, why aren't they when there's science to back it up? You've just done a 20-minute... No, 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 this is all documented. That's, yeah. that's right. So, yeah. so it's there. It, it, yeah, it, yeah. it is known in the world to be, to be a fact. Then why aren't they just going, oh, my God, this is, we should actually put him in, be more cow. We should be putting another million cattle into Ireland or we should be supporting yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, because they need, okay, who owns the cattle? Who's the champion of the cattle? It's farmers. And so when do farmers get their act together to sort of say, hey, I'm getting done over again by these guys calling me a patsy mm. and these are actually daisies and yeah. now I'm going to go in there and defend my daisies. Yeah. See, but unless farmers stand up and sort of basically... You know, they either take it in the neck or basically uh, they stand up and say, look, here's my invoice. Uh, by all means, go ahead with your tax, by all means, but basically... Yeah, um, I'll send you back an invoice uh, with it. Well, well, this, 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 you don't go to the bureaucrats, you go to the High Court to say, look, under Section 51C of the Australian Constitution, the Commonwealth can't appropriate goods from you without full fair compensation. Here's my... B, here's my ecosystem services from Daisy. Uh, I need those fully compensated for, and there's the invoice. Please pay in yeah. seven days. But now there's something bigger. <laughs> oh, there's there's another surprise. This is gold. tons of carbon as methane in the methane hydrates, the ice, you know, calcates in the ocean. Right, sorry, 15,000 billion. billion tonnes of carbon yep. as methane Gosh. frozen in the Earth's ocean, right? 
in the in the uh, and, uh, polar yeah. ice caps. And well, well, no, actually, it's it's on the continental shelves. It's from organic matter that it literally eroded out and has turned anaerobically into methane, and it's sitting there as methane ice, right? Right. Wow. And there's another five thousand billion tons of carbon as methane producing potential in our tundras, right? Yeah. So there's 20,000 billion tonnes of carbon. And as the planet is warming... And then, sorry, and, that, and, that, and that's just the carbon that's kind of inert or captured yeah, it's, or it's stored locked, or it's locked it's in locked there. up. But it, it, it's, it's basically methane that's locked up, not available in the air, right? Yeah. But as the planet is warming, then the question mark, can this release into the air? Yep. And if it releases in the air in any significant, I mean, this, this quantity is just so enormous. Yeah. Okay, hang on, by comparison, we've got 750 billion tonnes of carbon as CO2 in the air, right? Yeah. Okay, that's context again. You know, like, so here's 20,000 and there's 70, 750 billion tonnes of CO2 carbon. Yeah. So tonnes of carbon as CO2. So it's many, many times more. So many, many times. So if this starts burping and farting out from these hydrates of the uh, tundra. Due to a warming climate. Due to a warming climate, yeah. we're in shit, you know, really. And this is an extinction event, right? It's happened before. Yeah. And, of course, yeah, we know this is then an extinction sort of level event, right? Way beyond homo hubris. And we already know better than that that the Russian Arctic is bubbling CO, uh, methane as if it was lemonade, right? It's already, this is already active, right? From the, from, from yeah, this, yeah, yes, yeah, right. yeah. Okay. And also from the... the so the tundra is getting well, cranked getting up. Getting whole sinkholes yep. and stuff, right? Yeah. So this is already active, but obviously not. I mean, the quantities we haven't met, I mean, I think they can measure from space, but it's not going. But anyway, basically, if it's released, then it's an extinction event, right? And mm. higher life on Earth. And the only thing, the only thing that gives us a chance of actually avoiding this is Daisy and the caribou and the, you know, wildebeest and what have you. Because if they can maintain enough green grazing savannah pastures at high latitudes, right, if they can produce enough of this, then we've got enough photooxidation to basically drop, you know, to, to oxidise, to, 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 to offset, yeah, yeah right? gobble it up kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if it's a mass burp, yeah. but it is not going to be a mass burp because, you know, like it'll, it'll, like sea level rise, it'll be just melting, right? But so now the question is, is the balance between... You know, CH4 emissions from these sources, and then, of course, how good and healthy is this? I mean, we will be relying on this lady as, as really the, the same. Sylvia. But this is the thing that's so frustrating, Walter. Yeah. No, no, it is. It is. And then it gets even worse than that. You know, we said it was 700 parts per billion, right? Mm. But then in the 1990s, it went up to about 1,600 parts per billion. Okay? 1990s? Yeah, 1990s, right? 
And did we know? Did, was everyone sweltering then? Were they? No, was, no, was, no, we no, didn't know. No, what, no, wasn't we, it? We, we didn't know. Didn't it? Didn't make any difference to the temperature because it's only one percent of the whole. You know, as we said, the yeah. it's component of the greenhouse effect. It's of only course, one percent or three yep, yep, percent yep. or something, right? Yep. But it went up, and of course, Patsy got it again. You know, like, hang on, uh, Patsy's gone. It's gone up to sixteen hundred. Patsy's got it. But the answer is no. We had less herbivore in the nineteen nineties. Than we did before that. That's right. But what happened is, of course, the Russian Federation or USSR collapsed, and Boris Yeltsin basically has got all these gas fields that all the Ukraine or Germany is fighting over, you know, getting thing, and they did no maintenance on those gas fields because they didn't have any money, and they were leaking. The gas fields were leaking forty percent of the methane was leaking from the gas fields because they were you know, not being maintained properly. Wow. And that's so, what did and that. that's what caused that thing. And then basically in 2000, um, I should put it here, okay, in 2010 to 20, it went up to 2,400 parts per billion. You see? And again, guess what? Patsy gets it, right? Yeah. And of course this time it was basically fracking. Really? In the US and then wider. Yeah. Because basically as you fracture to get gas out of soils, then there's so many crevices. And so these are the fugitive emissions, right? Yep. And so that, that's basically... And again, we've, we've done all the studies. We know that the methane coming up is coming from these fossil fuel sources, not from the arse end of Patsy, right? You know, it's got a different isotope signature, right? But where is it now? Oh yeah, it's it's in that in the, it's in that order, right? Yeah. So the more patsies are taken out of the system, yeah, the less. Well, less, the more less, patsies less, are taken out of the system, the less is our control process. Less the potential to actually yeah, to control and mitigate control, against yeah, that. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Walter, thank you so much for that. I'm sure that's going to come out pretty well on that little yeah. video we got there. Okay, so basically, and again, this is the inter... I mean, basically, it's all the big science conferences, et cetera, et cetera, all documenting all this stuff. It's, it's no, 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 no dispute whatsoever. And again, the, again, the frustration is it's well-documented, it's scientifically proven, it's a fact, yeah. and unfortunately the people who could be making, could be utilising this well, for, for very positive, yeah. you know. And what I'm saying this all for is to say, look, it's all context, it's lies, lies and statistics, right? And if you set the context, if you're defining the context of the debate, yeah. then, then you can sort of put the argument. But if the argument is... Uh, do cattle produce methane? Yes. Is methane a greenhouse gas? Yes. Do greenhouse gas get taxed? Yes. You know, therefore I am taxing cattle. Yeah. Yes. And, and none of, and you don't allow these, these are external, and these are positive externalities, right? You don't allow the whole system science. It's a bit like I've got dieback and these, this tree is dying. This fungus is killing the tree. Yeah. I've got to so now nuke that fungus. fungus. Or you've got a cancer, right? And you've been eating shit food, etc., etc. 
And yes, let me operate on your cancer. It'll only be twenty-five thousand dollars, you know. And you've got a you've got a thirty percent chance of survival. Take it, you know. Mm. There's so much more to it. You see, and it's always context setting. And yeah. this comes back to the GDP that we bastardise every debate. That's my lessons from politics, right? We bastardise every debate because it's how the terms of reference or the context is set. You know, here's a royal commission and we'll write the terms for the royal commission. Yes, you've got to look at, you know, did that happen rather than who allowed it to happen? Walter, um, I'm looking at the yeah, time. We've got to go. It's yeah, two hours. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. this is fantastic. And I do, do want to, um, I want, I'd love to, if you've got time, for us to wander down to the rainforest that you help create, because I haven't seen it. Have you got time to do that? Yeah, yeah, we can go back. Yeah, yeah. Are, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, I'd love yeah, to do that. You don't have to film me, do you? I do. I have to. Oh, you have to. Okay. Okay. Because what I want to do is get my my camera, and I've got these little, these little fluffy mics, and just I've got, uh, for my Patreon members who are people who support the podcast, yeah. Um, every month, and um, I've got some little extra content I just give them. So if you and I have a, d- just three or four questions, yeah, yeah. but I'd like you to, if you've got, again, if you, if you got, haven't got the time, you've got to rush off to no, do no, something, no, let me know. Rush, but basically, yeah, no, we can do that. Um, the only thing is, yeah, the story is quite big, so we want to just condense it right down. Well, you condense it as as you as you feel, because yeah, um, yeah, I'll be able to video that with you and I walking along, and then I'll throw a couple of questions at you yeah, in situ, yeah, and then we'll call yeah. it a, call well, it a day. What, what it is, you see, above the rainforest, the rainforest is only so long. Above the rainforest, we've still got the original shit arid landscape. Yeah, right? right, cool. And then we've created the so we're stepping from original into the rainforest. And all we've done is change management process. That's going to be an amazing um, demonstration. And, and there's, there's a, on, I mean, yeah, look, do it, but there's a, uh, Stephen Curtin, you know, did a little film, Fire versus Fungi, right? Yep. And you'll see that on our site. Going to make and, another, and, and of the rainforest. And so you can get context from yep. that as well, right? Um, Stephen Curtin. Yeah, that's on the Regenerate Earth. Uh, Young yeah. films there. And yep. yeah, which we'll put in the show notes. Yeah. Walter, that has been so um, amazing. Um, thank you so much. Oh, I'm so happy because I was hoping I'd, I'd, I wasn't even thinking we to get this far, and I'm so glad we did because, again, it's, it, the context is really important. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the story of the methane, but it's the more important story of this is, as I said, the context setting, mm. the externalisation, and then this game between taxes and invoices, right? And who? And here's the passive farmer who's getting done over. Because we've been basically extracting social capital out of farmers. You know, when you think of they've just been screwed, screwed, turned over and screwed again, right? Next week on The Regenerative Journey, my guest is Blair Beatty, the man who's brought Farmer's Footprint from the US here to Australia, uh, recently launched, and, uh, and and Zach Bush, the the, man, the one and only, he'll be here in Australia um, very shortly after this episode's been released. Um, caught up with Blair, and he's home in the Northern Rivers of New South Wales, and I'm real honoured to sit with him and talk about his life and uh, journey so far and to really drill into what Farmer's Footprint here in Australia is doing and going to do for Australian agriculture and community. 
and uh, I hope you look forward to, <laughs> to, to listening next week as much as I did recording it. Blair Beatty, The Regenerative Journey, next week. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.